So today, get to introduce our new series that we were uh, planning to introduce last week. God had other plans. We got to talk about our heart for Memphis. I hope you were here for that. If you weren't, I would really encourage you to check out that podcast. Go to our Facebook page and and watch the service. Um, I, I think that God... Uh, spoke really strongly last Sunday, and I hope that, that he did for you. Uh, but today we are kicking off a brand new series called The Biggest Butts in the Bible. I have been joking about this series for I don't even know how, how many years. Uh, every time we come across a verse and there's a but that, that just completely flips the direction the verse is going, I make this joke about, hey, this is a big butt in the Bible, and we like big butts, and we cannot lie, or whatever, and we have some fun with it, and it's like, okay, you know what, we really need to actually do this. So we're taking four weeks to look at some of the biggest, and when I say biggest, obviously they're all the same amount of letters. We're not talking size-wise, we're talking impact. We're talking the, the, the game changers uh, that are in Scripture. And I'm going to tell you on the front end, my goal for this series isn't so much for you to see these big B-U-Ts in Scripture, although I hope that you do. I hope as you're reading and you're studying and you're spending with God, time with God, those things start to jump out at you as well. And you see, wow, look at how God has flipped the script in this situation, in this moment, in this person's life, in, in my life. But what I really want is for you to start seeing those big butts that God's placed in your own life. Man, what has God done to, to flip things around? How has he given you a 180-degree turn? Where have you done a U-turn? Because God stepped in, and when he stepped in, everything changed. I believe as Christians, we are people of the butt. And when I say we're people of the butt, I don't mean anatomically. That's between you and God. Uh, I don't even mean people of the Boston butt that we're in Memphis and people know how to throw down on some barbecue around here, and I'm grateful for that. One of the best things about God bringing you to the Memphis area is being introduced to the barbecue in this region. I am very grateful and fully converted. I came from North Carolina, which is well known for barbecue, and I will 100% tell you Memphis barbecue is greater in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Um, So... But when I say we're people of the butt, what I mean is God has stepped in. If you are a Christian, your life was headed one direction going towards failure, frustration, purposelessness, brokenness, bondage, addiction. And at some point in time, God said, but in your life said, but I'm not going to let you go. But I'm not going to let you continue to be lost. I'm not going to let you continue to be addicted. I'm not going to let you continue down that road. I'm stepping in. I'm sending Jesus, and I'm changing everything for you. Aren't you grateful for the God of the but? What does the but look like in your life? You see, as believers, I believe we all share some very common butts. Today's message, by the way, if you want to title it, part one is, I like big butts and I cannot lie. All right, we're just going to lean into it. We're going to Sir Mix-a-Lot it. I'm from Seattle. Sir Mix-a-Lot was from Seattle. That's probably about all that we share in common, but we are going to use that title today. What are these big butts? Well, as believers, we share some butts. I believe we could all finish this sentence. I was lost. What would you say? But now I'm found, right? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, right? We know these things. We have grabbed a hold of them for part of our DNA. I was dead. 
guys are participating. Thank you. There could be some amens in there. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Amen. Praise Jesus. That's my testimony. That's my story. That's what he has done for me and he's done for you. I was broken, but now I'm whole. I was chained, like Dwindle said, but now I have freedom. My sin abounded, but thanks to Jesus, his grace much more abounds. We serve a God of the but. God who steps in when things are dark, when they're broken, when they're falling apart. And he says, I got something better. I am so grateful for a God who moves in this way. I do like big butts, and I cannot lie. Today, we're going to ask this question, what is your butt? What does that look like for you? What is your testimony? What was life like for you apart from Christ? Or even perhaps you're like me and you got saved so young that that there was not this deep, dark period before Jesus, but there was a dark period after Jesus where you ran from God, you ran from what he had for you, and he still pursued you despite you already knowing better. That's my testimony, really, much more so than than pre-Christ. I was Blessed with, with parents who introduced me to Jesus at an early age. Most of you have probably heard this story, but the first time I ever asked Jesus to be my Savior, I was with my dad in my bedroom in Seattle, Washington. This is the story goes. I was two years old. I think I remember it, but I probably don't. I probably just heard the story enough that I have manufactured this picture and memory in my mind. I don't know. I know I do remember being four years old and being at church and, and saying I wanted Jesus uh, at, at another moment. I remember being eight years old and saying I wanted Jesus at another moment. I don't know which one took. I don't know which point I actually got saved, which point the Holy Spirit actually came to live in me and I was regenerated. But I know it happened early in life. I know it happened before I had discovered great levels of sin. I also know that I rebelled and ran from God. I wish I could say just once, honestly, that was more than once, different seasons. But every time God stepped in, every time he kept chasing me and kept pursuing me and kept drawing me back to his goodness, to his freedom, to something better, and he even invited me to be used by him to tell others about him, to be part of allowing others to discover the joy of knowing Jesus and serve a God of the body. So what's yours? What does that look like in your life? Today, I just want us to reacquaint ourselves with our own story. Sometimes our story grows a little dim in our lives. Sometimes it begins to fade. Maybe it's been decades since we met Jesus. Maybe it's been a long time since we were in sin. And if if we're not careful, we can actually forget what it's like to be apart from Jesus. We can forget what the hopelessness is like without him. And when we lose that, we, we lose a couple of things. First of all, I think we lose the joy of our salvation. There is nothing better than realizing God stepped into your life and changed everything. It's incredible. It's amazing when you can remember your salvation and and that moment of God setting you free. Man, it's, it's powerful. I also think it matters in how we treat those who don't know Jesus yet. 
Because when we forget what he's done for us, it becomes really easy to get religious and judgmental and start distancing ourselves from others, from the world, from those who aren't living right. And we start looking down on them. We start condemning them. We start getting angry and mad at them. And we start treating them like the enemy, even though the word of God tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our war is not against people who don't know Jesus. Our war is for people who don't know Jesus, that they can be set free and discover the same joy that we have. Amen. And so we got to remember the but. We got to remember what he's done in our life because it gives us a heart for those who haven't received it yet. Not only does it give us a heart for them, but it actually gives us the engine, the power to pursue them because the word of God says we overcome by the word of our testimony. Our testimony sets others free. You didn't know your butt was that powerful, did you? You had no idea the power of your butt. Man, it has eternal significance, life-changing power. You overcome by the power of the blood and the word of your testimony. So what's your butt? What has he done in your life? Perhaps for some of us today, we haven't yet met Jesus, and today will actually be the day of your butt. Today will be the day that you meet him, the day that he steps in, the day that he flips everything around for you, the day that you look back on with joy, the way you, day you look back and celebrate. For most of us, that was a different day. We've already experienced that. But I want you today to reacquaint yourself with that but I want you to fill this in. If you're taking notes, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you can't fill it in right now. Maybe you just write it with the underline and you come back and fill it in later and really pray it through. But I want you to think, I was this, but now I'm this. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was, I was broken, but now I'm whole. I was hopeless, but now I'm hopeful. I was addicted, but now I'm free. I was angry, but now I'm joyful. I was discouraged, but now I have purpose. What does that statement look like for you? What is around your butt? Because if you're a believer in Jesus, you should have some answers to those blanks. You should have something you can put in there. I'm looking around the room right now, and some of you have some real recent answers to this. And I'm excited for what God's doing in your life. And, man, the way that God's moved and, and encountered your situation, I'm so grateful for it. I was blank, but now I'm blank. What does that look like for you? I believe each of us should have an answer and something to fill in in that statement. What I want to do today in the, the brief time that we have is I know that we need to be quick this morning. Is I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I really wrestled with what was going to be our first biblical butt that we were going to dig into what was the first one that we were going to get to there's there's so many in fact I think I have like 19 written down in my my series document and I got four weeks so there's like 15 that ain't making the cut uh so so I'm, I'm stressed and wrestling like which ones of these can we actually highlight which ones can we emphasize which ones do we have time for and I've kind of gone back and forth and tried to pray it through and and, and I think I've settled on this one which was actually the first one that 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 made me think we need to do this series that, hey, this is, 
the, the right one for the introduction. It's from Ephesians chapter 2, and most of these that we're going to encounter are probably just one or two or maybe three verses that, that give us some context before the but, and then the but happens, and a little bit of information afterwards, and, and it kind of flips things around. Um, this one's going to be a little bit longer. This is 10 verses to really discover everything that happens once we see this biblical but. If, if I can illustrate for you what the buts of the Bible, the conjunction of really just the English language, anytime we encounter this word, B-U-T, what it really does, the best way I can think of it, how many of you guys play Uno? Like most of us, right? I don't mean like you play like weekly, but you've played Uno, okay? You know the rules, you're familiar with the game. Well, my, my kids like Uno, and one of the things that they love is they love skipping you, they love dropping cards on you, but they also love reversing, right? Like it's about to be your turn, and they're going to play that card, and they're going to laugh at you, because now it's not your turn. Now it goes the other directions. A butt in the Bible is like an Uno reverse, right? Like, like, man, this statement is going one direction, we see things happening this way, and then all of a sudden, this B-U-T gets played, and now things are going the complete opposite direction. It's the best way that I think I, I can illustrate the power of what we're about to encounter. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. We have read these scriptures before in, in a few other messages. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture I want you to see the power of what the Apostle Paul is teaching the church of Ephesus here. He says, as for you, everybody say, that's me. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He says, as for you, you were dead. Everybody say, I was dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Pause. Everything that happens for us, everything that God does through the gift of salvation, through the gospel for us, happens because of what has already happened to Jesus, right? And, and so Jesus actually appears in the book of Revelation. There's this vision that the, the apostle John has of Jesus, and Jesus tells him of events that are to come. And Jesus, in his introduction to John, as he tells him who he is, he says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end, I'm the first, I'm the last. He makes all these famous statements about himself. One of my favorite things he says about himself is he says, I was dead. Mic drop, right? Not only does he say I was dead, he's saying I was dead to someone who watched him die. He's not just making a statement to John. He's reminding John of things that he has witnessed with his own eyes. John was there at the cross as Jesus took his last breath. That one of Jesus' last conversations was with John as he said, basically, I need you to take care of my mom. She's your mom now. Giving you the responsibility of watching out for her. And so John at the cross watches Jesus take his last earthly breath. He watches Jesus speak to the Father and say, into your hands I commit my spirit. And his body goes limp and he is dead. He sees the Roman soldiers take him off the cross and they take him and bury him in a tomb. And he's actually one of the last eyewitnesses. And closest eyewitnesses of the death of Jesus and also one of the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. He's the one who, who goes in or goes to the tomb. He, he races Peter and he makes sure in the book of John he lets us know that he beats Peter to the tomb. Right? He was the faster one. He's probably the younger one. He gets to the tomb first and he stands at the edge. But Peter goes in and, and they discover Jesus isn't dead. 
Why am I telling you all that? Because when it says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, there's a but coming. And that but that's coming for us only comes for us because Jesus was dead, not in transgression and not in sin, but he was dead. But now he's alive. What has happened for Jesus has been given to us. As for you, you were dead. And your transgressions and sins, you want to get a heart for the lost? Get a heart for those who don't know Jesus? Part of it starts with remembering you were dead. You were a goner. You were lost. You were broken. You were outcast. You were an enemy of God in your sin and transgression, and so was I. In which you used to live, praise God, you don't live in that anymore, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So the same enemy who kept you chained like that elephant to that stake is now keeping others chained. He's still at work in those who are now far from God. Verse 3, he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, not the worst among us, not those of us who, who, who had it worse, who had the worst, most outward sinfulness, all of us. The world may have thought you were always a good person, but the reality is you lived amongst the lost at one time doing what? Gratifying the cravings of your flesh and following the desires and thoughts of your flesh like the rest we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Our sin made us worthy of separation from God, of, of eternal separation from him. Verse 4, everybody say it with me. But. Say it with me, say it loud, say it proud. But. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even while we were dead in transgressions. In other words, we didn't fix ourselves. We didn't get rid of our junk. And then God said, okay, now you're acceptable. Now you can come to me. Now I'll make you alive. He said, you'll never make yourself good enough. You'll never make yourself acceptable. So I'm just going to do it for you. Why? Because he's got great love for us. Because he's rich in mercy. Rich means you got more than enough. Means you got abundant. Means you got some to spare and some to share. And I serve a God who's got mercy to spare. Who's got mercy to share? I don't know who needs to hear that today. But he is sparing mercy for you. And he is sharing mercy with you. And he's sending you as an agent of that abundant mercy to those who need that mercy right now. But because of his great love for us, my God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sin, our transgression. By the way, transgression is not just sin. Transgression is willful sin. Transgression is premeditated sin, right? Sometimes you're driving down the road and somebody does something stupid on the road and something comes out of your mouth and it's sin. But it wasn't transgression, right? You didn't plan that sin. It just kind of happens. Kind of just showed up. The abundance of your heart spoke. Your mouth spoke, right? Uh, and it came out. But transgression 
is when you know your spouse is coming home and you can go off on them. It's premeditated. You've planned this. Here's what I'm going to say and how I'm going to twist the knife and hurt them, right? So we were dead not just in sin. We were dead in transgression. We were all premeditated, first-degree sinners. But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, abounding in love, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace and grace alone that I've been saved. And so have you. Verse 6, it doesn't stop there. Now we got another conjunction. First we had the but, now we got the and. He's already flipped it. He's already reversed it. Now he's going to start stacking some cards on top of it. And God raised us with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Remember in 1 Peter we discovered that we're foreigners here. We're aliens here. This is not our home. We have another home. Why? Because spiritually right now you are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And that's a really hard one to wrap our brain around because you don't feel it and you don't see it. And through our senses we don't experience it right now, but we receive it by faith. That the word of God declares it over us as followers of Jesus, as recipients of salvation, that your spirit right now is seated. Number one, it's seated in heavenly places. That's more than enough, right? Like, that's incredible. That's mind-blowing. That's more than we deserve. But you're not just seated in heavenly places. You're seated with the Son of God. With the lamb, the sacrifice, the one who paid the price for our sins. You are seated with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable, here's that word again, riches, abundance, wealth, more than enough, enough to share and enough to spare of his grace expressed. In his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. Now, elsewhere, I believe it's in the book of Romans, the same apostle Paul says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that draws us to him. It's his kindness that causes us to want him in our lives. Verse 8. Four. So we had a but. Then we had an and, now we got another preposition. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, his free gift that he's given to us, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, none of us can earn it. None of us is worth it. We're not going to get to heaven and have our works stacked up and said, hey, this one was better than that one. This one is worthy and this one's not. It's not my works that I'm judged by. Praise Jesus, it's his. It's because of his works that I'm good enough. It's because of his works that I'm given a place with him in eternity. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. The Greek word there, I believe, is, if I remember correctly, is katizo. And, and, and I know that the, the picture of the Greek word is, is the potter with the clay. He's just using his fingers to shape it exactly the way he wants it. 
There's a good reason it doesn't say we are Troy's handiwork because I am not artistic. And if you put me at a potter's wheel, there would be nothing beautiful come out of that. We are God's handiwork. What does that tell us? There's an intimacy between the potter and the clay. The potter wants to get close to the clay. He, he touches the clay. He shapes it into exactly what he wants it to be is what he's done for you. We are his handiwork. That's beautiful. Created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works. So verse 9 said we don't get our salvation by good works. Verse 10 says even though we don't get salvation by good works, we were created for good works. Okay, so it's not that works don't matter. Works do matter. They just don't get us to heaven. But if we're going to fulfill our purpose, if we're going to fulfill what we were created for, if we're going to justify the time that God spent with us at the potter's wheel, shaping us exactly right and placing that personality in us and that passion in us and those giftings in us and making us exactly the way he wanted us to be, there's going to be some good works that are supposed to come out. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And oh, by the way, God prepared them in advance for us to do. Before he ever put us on earth, he knew, I'm going to have Shalom do some good works. And they're going to be good. I'm going to have Michelle accomplish some things. I'm going to have Zach do some good works, right? He, he, he looked at us and he shaped us and he planned some good works for us. But God, because of his amazing love for us, his incredible love for us, his deep love for us, he rescued us when we were dead in transgressions and he made us alive with Christ. I want to very quickly as we close today give you three implications of my favorite but. Th three things that this but can teach for us from Ephesians chapter 2. Three things that, that I think will help us as we wrestle with what is our but look like. Number one, you were dead but God made you alive with Christ. Obvious one, the most explicit one in the text. This is the one that is right there on the surface for all of us to see. But if we're going to grab a hold of our testimony, if we're going to grab a hold of what God has truly done for us and, and allow it to, to change our attitude, to change our perspective, to bring us the joy that it should bring, the peace that it should bring, we, 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 we got to go back to the basics. We got to get this one right. I was dead. But now, because of his great love for us, I've been made alive with Christ. Amen. I show it to you in Scripture, so you're not just taking my word for it. Hopefully you've already caught it. But just in case you were snoozing through the first part, let's make sure you get it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And by the way, the Apostle Paul is famous grammatically among Bible translators for run-on sentences. Like Paul would just, Paul wrote the way I imagine that he preached. He just got up there and he just started going. And he didn't pause. He didn't, he didn't think about, you know, let me make this sentence structure perfect. Uh, he just started talking and stuff just started spewing out. And sometimes I go back and listen to my messages and I'm like, yeah, there's no sentence there. Like that was five paragraphs of one sentence. I just started going. Uh, and then I read Paul and I'm like, okay, I'm all right. Paul did this too and God still used him. So maybe it's not terrible. Uh, I, I want to be grammatically proper and correct. And I try to be and sometimes I just get a little too excited. And I think Paul got a little excited here. Uh, and so even though we're we're going to skip down to verse 4. This is all part of one sentence. That's why I'm telling you that. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love. Aren't you glad he's got great love for you? 
I mean, it's amazing he's got any love for you, let's be real, right? It's amazing he's got any love for me, but he doesn't just have a little love for me. He doesn't just kind of tolerate me. He doesn't just allow me to be around. He has great, deep, powerful, affectionate love for me because of his great love for me. God, who is rich in mercy, made me alive with Christ even when I was dead. My transgressions, the first implications of my favorite biblical but is that you were dead, but God made you alive with Christ. The second implication is that you deserved God's wrath, but God gave you grace instead. We don't like talking about God's wrath. I don't like talking about God's wrath. I love emphasizing the great love that God has for me. But the reality is my God is both gracious and merciful and also just. And his justice burns against sin. And we have to believe that because if God wasn't a just God, it would be incredibly unnecessary for him to allow his son to die. If we didn't understand the wrath of God, the sacrifice of Jesus would be cruel, inhumane, and arguably just flat out wrong. But because of the wrath that burns against sin, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be one who stepped in and took that penalty for us or else it was eternally destined for me. I was destined for wrath. But Jesus, he died in my place. He took the pain, he took the sting, he took the penalty, he took the death for me. So I don't have to experience it. One of the most powerful things that Jesus said on the cross. As he was about to die, he calls out to his father and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, from eternity past, Jesus and the Father were were linked. They were one. And yet, as Jesus prepared to take my sin on his shoulders, to pay the penalty for my eternal condemnation, the Father actually had to turn his face away from his son. There had to be a separation, and Jesus didn't just feel the weight of my sin. He felt the weight of separation from the Father. Because Jesus took that penalty for me, I don't ever have to experience separation from God again. The Holy Spirit is in me. His presence is with me. I'm seated with Jesus in heavenly places. And one day when I leave this life and enter the next, I'll be face to face with the Father because of what Jesus did for me. He experienced the penalty for my sin, including the separation from his Father. Now, praise God that separation was only temporary. Because he was the perfect sacrifice, because it was an unjust death that he suffered, it was reversible. God was able to step in and breathe new life into Christ and raise him to new life. And so we can be joined with him. But I deserve God's wrath. And so did you. 
But God gave us, gave us grace instead. Let me show it to you. Ephesians 2, 3. He says, also, all of us also lived among them, among the lost, at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the flesh's desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace. You've been saved. I deserved his wrath, but I received his grace instead. Number three, you live to gratify your flesh, but God prepared good works for you. Apart from Jesus, you lived for you. When we lead people to to Jesus here, when we do a salvation prayer with them, we always have them say, I give you the throne of my heart. And there's a reason for that because by nature there's somebody who lives on the throne of my heart. And it's not Satan. It's me. I live to gratify my flesh, my desires, and so do you. All of us are born with ourselves on the throne. In fact, if you ever need an illustration of your own selfishness, I recommend marriage and I really recommend parenthood. You bring somebody else into your life, into your home, into your family, you're going to discover real quick how much your life revolves around me, myself, and I. And how much those little cries for attention grate against your flesh. And against yourself being on the throne, I think it's one of the great blessings of family is God has given them to us to help us realize how selfish by nature we really are. Man, I I thought I was a selfless dude. I was a youth pastor. I love Jesus. I I moved across the country. Like, I thought I had it right. And I got married and had kids, and I discovered I'm a jerk. Like, I am. And I already got Jesus. Imagine how big of a jerk I was without Jesus. Like, Horrible. We live for our flesh, for our desires, for our thoughts. But God had a plan for us to live for something more, for us to live for something greater. Our God who's rich in mercy and abounding in love made us alive with Christ while we were dead in our transgressions. And then he said, I'm not just going to stop with saving you. I'm going to bring you on my team, and I'm going to unleash you to go out there and do some good for the world. Not just saving you so I can feel good about myself. Man, I made sure that Steve didn't have to go to hell. High five, God. Right? Amanda liked that one. Uh, (laughs) He saved us from something, but he also saved us to something. He saved us back to that original purpose, to that original plan, to accomplish something for his glory, to accomplish something for the good of others. And so no longer are we allowed and and planned to live for ourselves. Now we live for the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do when he shaped us, when he catezoed us as his handiwork on the potter's wheel. You might have lived to gratify your flesh, but now God has prepared good works for you. Let me show it to you in Scripture as we get ready to close. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, doing what? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following it, it being the flesh, its desires and thoughts. Verse 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, this not from yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we, everybody say we. Notice he, he changes. He, he's been speaking a lot in the first person. There's a little bit 
corporately, but it's mostly individually. But now he says, we, all of us, we, the family of God, the kingdom of God, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do something. Why are we created to do good works? Because Jesus was the one who did good works. We're created to be like him. And we're going to be like Jesus, and we're going to live up to his call and his name and his anointing and his spirit. What's going to happen? There's going to be some good stuff that comes out of us. Not so we can get into heaven. Man, religion has flipped it upside down and messed this thing up, and we think we got to be good so that God will love us. But God loved us while we were dead in our transgressions. His great love for us caused us to come alive. We don't do good works to earn anything for God. We do good works because we have God, and he's empowered us us to do them I live for my flesh I live for me I was on the throne but God who is rich in mercy and abounding in grace raised me to new life in Christ and sent me out to do some good works what an invitation what an amazing offer to actually get to be on God's team and represent him to the world so as you go home today, church, as you go through your week, I want you to wrestle with this one simple question. What is your butt? Who were you apart from God? And who are you now because God stepped in? Who were you when you were dead in transgressions? Or maybe like me, maybe you can't go back that far. Maybe you don't even really remember what life was like before Jesus. Who were you living for yourself even in Christ Jesus? Before God really got a hold of you and woke you up, that he's got something better. Who would you be apart from him? And who are you now? What's your butt? Would you pray with me, church? Father God, I